Yes, amen. I am eager to be with you today to open up God's word. That God that we worship, that God who is our foundation and our comfort, who is our hope and our reward, who is our life, he speaks to us in his word. We get to hear from him today. Please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, if you would, this morning. Luke chapter 6, I'm going to read our text and then we'll pray together. The text for this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, but I'm going to read a longer text, and you'll see why in a few moments. Luke chapter 6, verse 17, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Luke writes that he, speaking of Jesus, came down with them, that's the 12 whom he has just chosen, and he stood on a level place, and with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, for your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. 
Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood came, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house Was great. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Father, we come this morning to your word, and we recognize that this is true spiritual food for us today. Lord, we need to hear from your son, Jesus Christ. We need to see him as he really is. We need to understand what his message was, and we need hearts of faith to receive and respond to what he says. I pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ this morning and that you would make clear this precious passage of scripture so that we as followers of Christ might be faithful to believe and obey all that you set before us. Lord, we need your help to do this, so we ask for your spirit to be at work in us and through us today, all for the glory of your name, amen. So the whole Christian life, from start to finish, centers on Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ means that we believe in who he is, that he's the Son of God. It means that we trust in what he does, that he died and he rose again, and our salvation is bound up in his work. But believing in Jesus, following Jesus, also means that we receive and we respond to his teaching, to his message. That's part of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. Our lives are shaped by the words of our master. And that's why the gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they don't just tell us about his birth. They don't just tell us about his life, his death, his resurrection. Each one of those gospels contains also the teaching of Jesus. It contains his message. What is that message? What is the essential message that Jesus preached? Well, in some, it was good news. Good news. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, if you remember a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and he said this in Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came preaching good news. The year of the Lord's favor, that's grace. 
The message of Jesus is grace. It is good news for us. And it's not just good news about the weather. It's not just good news that you're getting a pay raise. It is good news about what God is doing in the world. That's the heart of this message, that God is fulfilling his promises to bring salvation to his people. When the people of Capernaum wanted Jesus to stay and not move on, Jesus replied in Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. This mission of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God is what moved Jesus from place to place. It's what propelled him into the public spotlight, and it's what ultimately got him killed. In Luke chapter 6, after calling the 12, Jesus is ramping up his teaching ministry. He's no longer in the synagogues. They're too small. He's now out on the hillside. He's in the open, and he's speaking to large crowds. And there, Jesus preaches the good news of the kingdom. The sermon today is basically going to be an intro to that sermon. We read the whole sermon in its entirety, but don't worry, we're not going to work through every verse this morning in detail. That's going to take us several weeks. But I do want to give us an overview of this sermon and to introduce it, to set it up, to set the stage and show us the key themes that Jesus is going to be preaching so that as we walk through this famous discourse, we'll be able to better grasp the full message of Jesus. Because his message, his words are instructive for us. He is not just a teacher, he is our teacher. He's our savior, he's our master, and our lives as followers of Jesus are to be shaped by the words of our master. So before we jump into to our text this morning, we first need to answer two questions. And this is, it might feel like a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I feel it's necessary before we begin to study this sermon. And the first of these questions is this. How does this sermon in Luke chapter 6 relate to perhaps a more well-known passage, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7? Because there we have another famous record of Jesus' teaching. And as we look at these two passages, Luke chapter 6, Matthew 5 through 7, 5 through 7, we look at them side by side, you'll notice there's a lot of similarities. Both of those passages start with blessings. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And they both end with a parable about building your house on the rock. And in between those two bookends, there's a lot of overlapping material. But there's also a lot of differences. When we look at Matthew and Luke, the setting appears to be a little bit different. In Matthew's gospel, his disciples go up to him on the mountain. In Luke's gospel, Jesus comes down the mountain to where the crowd is. The posture appears different. Jesus stood on a level place in Luke, but it says he sat and taught them in Matthew's account. The length of these sermons is different. Luke has about 30 verses worth of teaching material, while Matthew is much longer. There's 109 verses there. And Luke, although it's shorter, has some content that's missing from Matthew's gospel. It's not just a shortened version of the same thing. So why is that? What explains these similarities and differences? Well, I think there's two possibilities. They're both valid. Perhaps these are different sermons. As we already read from Luke chapter 4, Jesus told the people at Capernaum, I can't stay here. I need to go to other towns because I need to preach the good news of the kingdom there also. I read chapter 7, verse 1. At the end of the sermon, it says, Jesus finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. 
So if Jesus has an essential message that he wants everyone to hear, it makes sense that when he goes from one town to the next, from one mountain to the next, from one region to the next, he's not necessarily preaching different sermons. He has these key themes, these central truths that he wants everyone to be exposed to. And so that might explain both the similarities and the differences. Preachers often have key phrases they go back to that might get tweaked and delivered with some slight modifications in different contexts. But it's also possible that this very well may be the same sermon. Matthew and Mark are telling the same story from different perspectives. And it's likely that for both of them, they're probably not saying everything that Jesus said. They're editing this down and selecting the key aspects of that sermon that's relevant for the message that they are emphasizing in their Gospels. Because Matthew and Mark are writing different books for different audiences. Matthew writes for Jews, and Luke, who's a Gentile, is writing to a man named Theophilus, who's also a Gentile. So it makes sense that they might have different emphases. Now, personally, I think it's probably two different sermons. I think these are two different occasions. But I could be wrong, and it's really not that big of a deal. Because in either case, we don't need to get hung up on this issue. It shouldn't cause us to stumble as we study this passage. Rather, we should carefully consider the words of Jesus that are being recorded for us here. Because we need to hear and obey what Jesus has to say to us. We want to be like the wise builder who builds his house on the rock instead of sand. So that's the pressing issue. Not whether it's the same sermon, but whether we're hearing it. Whether or not we are responding to it. So that's the first question. The second question I want to bring up is, what is the kingdom of God? Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And he opens this sermon with a reference to the kingdom of God. In verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This theme of the kingdom of God is the glue. This is the theme that sort of holds this whole sermon together. Now, this term, the kingdom of God, is probably one you've heard before. It's, it's a common Christian terminology. It's something we read about in Scripture. It's a term that maybe gets thrown around a lot uh, in Christian conversation. But I won't put you on the spot. But I want to ask, can you define the kingdom of God? Think about that just for a moment. If you had to stand up and say, this is the kingdom of God. I'll give you just a second to think about it. Maybe it's harder than we think. It's difficult to define, in part because there's several different views of what constitutes the kingdom of God. Is it now, or is it future? Is it something that's spiritual in its nature, or is it something that is physical? Is it something that is centered around the nation Israel, or is it a reality for the church? Or is it some sort of combination of all of those? We've all probably heard a mixture of teaching from different perspectives on the kingdom of God So it's probably fuzzy for many of us. It's a hard concept to nail down. Well, I'm not going to give you all the different views this morning. I'm rather just going to attempt to give a simple working definition of the kingdom of God because I think that will serve us as we study through this sermon over the next several weeks. The kingdom of God is very simply, as one author puts it, God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. When we simplify it and zoom out that far, it starts to come into focus. And this theme of the kingdom, of God's people being where God wants them and being rightly related to him underneath his rule, that's arguably the theme of the whole Bible. We see this original design for the kingdom all the way back in the garden, don't we? We have God's people, Adam and Eve, 
in the place where God wanted them to be, in the garden, and they're underneath God's rule. He gives them a commission to be fruitful and multiply and, and subdue the earth. And he gives them his law to eat from everything except for one tree. And everything is set up perfectly. But what ruins that plan? It's sin, right? Sin damages this original kingdom. But God didn't give up on this kingdom plan. We see a prototype of a restored kingdom in the nation of Israel. Once again, we have God's people. He rescues them out of slavery in Egypt and brings them into relationship with him in the covenant. He puts them in the land of Canaan, this place that he has designated for them. And they are underneath his rule, obeying his law, seeking to be faithful to his covenant. So we see a a prototype of a restored kingdom in the nation Israel. But once again, there is ruin that is brought to this plan. Israel, just like Adam and Eve, disobeys God's law. They are unfaithful to God's covenant. They turn away from him to worship idols. Their relationship with him is damaged. They go into exile. They're driven out of the land. The glory of God departs from the temple. So we now see there's still a need for this kingdom purpose to be accomplished and fulfilled. We see the beginnings of a restored kingdom in the church. Once again, We see God's people rescued from sin, brought into saving relationship with him through Christ. But we're not yet home, are we? We're not really in the place yet that that belongs to us. However, God has come to make his home in us. His spirit dwells in our hearts through faith. And we are underneath his gracious rule. But there's still more to come. Though Colossians 1.13 says, he's delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, there's still a future aspect to this kingdom. We see the fulfillment for God's plans for his kingdom when Jesus returns. The nations will be brought under his rule. The enemy will be finally defeated and all things are going to be made new. And then it will be perfectly God's people in God's place, this renewed creation Underneath his perfect rule, we will enjoy relationship with our God, dwelling with him forever. So that's sort of a a, a very zoomed out, high level understanding of what the kingdom of God is. And it's a thread that winds all throughout the entire Bible. So what that means is that the prophecies of the Messiah, these promises that Jesus is fulfilling when he comes to earth, those are kingdom promises, We need a righteous king who can mediate God's rule over God's people. So it's good news when Jesus teaches that he is the son of David, that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah. That's the good news of the kingdom. The prophecies of salvation are also kingdom promises. There must be a people who gladly receive and rejoice in God's rule. And the good news is that God is providing personal salvation for sinners rescuing us from our sin, removing the hostility that exists between rebellious sinners and a holy God so that we can enjoy fellowship with him. The good news is that God is providing personal salvation for sinners. The prophecies of a new heaven and a new earth, the return of Christ and the final judgment, that is all kingdom promises as well. There must be a renewed realm in which God's people can dwell with their God. So it's good news that God is bringing about the restoration of all things. So this is the big picture summary of God's program. 
This is the way throughout history in which God is magnifying his glory. So when Jesus comes preaching the good news of the kingdom, which is what it says in Luke, he is announcing to everyone that God is moving this plan, his plan. He's moving it forward. He's bringing it one step closer to its completion. So with that said, trying to understand the similarities and differences between Matthew and Luke and trying to get our heads around a little bit around this idea of the kingdom of God. Today, I'd like to set the stage for this sermon, a sermon that I believe is a summary of Jesus's message, the good news of the kingdom. We're going to focus on the setting for this sermon in verses 17 through 19 of chapter six. And I want to consider today three things. I want to look at the audience for the sermon. I want to look at the preacher of the sermon, and then look at the message. We'll look at the content of the sermon as well. And as we do, we're going to learn three essential truths about the good news of the kingdom. And the first is this, when we consider the audience. We look in verse 17. We find that the good news of the kingdom is for all who come to Jesus. The good news of the kingdom is for all who come to Jesus. There's several groups that are presented here in this text. First, we have the 12. It says he came down with them. That's referring to these 12 whom he has just chosen and named apostles. They're on the front row. Jesus begins to teach, and you have these brand new followers. Well, they're, they're brand new in, in terms of their proximity to Jesus. They've just been selected to be nearest to him. They're on the front row when Jesus begins to teach. But in addition to the 12, there's this larger group of disciples who are following him. There's these people who have come from all around. They listen to his teaching, and they're sort of loosely connected with Jesus' ministry. And they're probably in various stages of understanding. They're still trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he's about. And they're in various stages of commitment as well. In fact, John's gospel tells us that at some point in his ministry, some of these who at one point considered themselves disciples, that some of them will actually leave. They will stop following him. But there's also a large crowd from Judea and Jerusalem, those who didn't even consider themselves disciples at this point. It's what Luke calls a great multitude in verse 17. Some were just curious. You hear that somebody's healing and casting out demons, you might want to go check that out. They want to see who Jesus is and figure him out. There's others there that may have been spying on him. There's a growing conspiracy among the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember back in verse 11, after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, they are filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So there's some people there who are hostile towards him. But I want you to notice especially that there are people in the crowd from outside the borders of Israel. Look in verse 17. He came down with them, with the twelve. He stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, the reference to these two coastal cities, Tyre and Sidon, this would have jumped off the page for the early readers of Luke's gospel. Tyre and Sidon were pagan cities. They were Gentile cities, and they were famous, or infamous rather, for their history of wickedness and idolatry. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 26 and 27, you get two chapters full of divine judgment being pronounced on these cities. 
And now you have people from these cities who historically had been considered outsiders, historically had been considered objects of God's judgment. And now Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom to them. This is remarkable. That God's plan includes not just Israel, but people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. We find this emphasis all throughout Luke's gospel. Remember Simeon, when he meets baby Jesus in the temple, he cries out in Luke 2, 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Yes, God will fulfill his saving purposes for Israel, but he's doing more. He's doing more than that. As he's bringing a savior, the good news of the kingdom is for all who come to Jesus. We see it in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3. Jesus' tr- ancestry is traced all the way back past David, past Abraham, all the way to Adam himself, underscoring that Jesus is the Savior for humanity. He is a second Adam who represents not just Israel, but the entire human race. It's fascinating. Following this sermon... When we get to chapter 7, the first person on record to respond in faith to this message, believing in Jesus, is a Roman centurion, a Gentile, an occupier of Israel. Not only does Jesus announce the good news to these people, these people from Tyre and Sidon who are mingled in with people from Jerusalem and Judea, he also ministers to them. Look in verse 18 and 19. It says, all these people... They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. He healed them all. Jews and Gentiles. So Luke, who is a Gentile himself, writes this book for Theophilus, who's also a Gentile, and he's eager to show that, yes, while Jesus is Israel's Messiah, he is the son of David, he is also more. He is the Savior for the world. And this is good news. It's good news that the kingdom of God is open to all who will come to Jesus, fishermen and tax collectors, prostitutes and Pharisees, Jews and Gentiles, you and me. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Listen, friends, the message that Jesus shares, the good news of salvation and life and forgiveness and belonging in the kingdom of God, that good news is extended to all who will repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. So the good news of the kingdom is for all who come to Jesus. It's what we learn as we consider the audience. But what happens when we consider the preacher? Well, number two, the good news of the kingdom is centered on the person and work of Jesus. The good news of the kingdom is centered on the person and work of Jesus. There's a lot of commotion in verses 17 through 19. There's crowds, there's people, there's demons being cast out, there's people being healed. There's a lot happening. But what's at the center of it all? 
What's right in the middle of all the action? What's well, Jesus? He's the one who's been anointed by God, who's authorized to preach this message, and everybody's listening to him. This is his mission, to go and proclaim this good news. Jesus is the one who tells us what the kingdom is like, that it is coming, that it involves both reward and judgment, and that its values are often completely contrary to this present age. Jesus tells us what the kingdom is like. Jesus tells us how we may enter it. John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't earn your way in. It's not a given. It's not an automatic. It's not like everyone belongs to the kingdom unless you're really bad and you forfeit you know, your place there. No, there must be a divine miracle of grace. There must be new birth. There must be a creation of spiritual life in us by the Spirit of God as we believe in the gospel. Jesus also tells us what's required of its citizens. That's what this sermon is about. It will outline what life should look like for followers of Jesus. If you belong to the kingdom, this is how you are to live. So Jesus is teaching all of this with authority, by the way. Matthew's gospel tells us that after the Sermon on the Mount, that people were amazed by the authority with which Jesus taught this. The good news of the kingdom is centered on the person and work of Jesus. Not only did he preach about the kingdom, Jesus also gave them an object lesson that day. It says that power went out of him, and he healed the sick, and he cured those who were troubled by unclean spirits. And the question is why? Why did Jesus do that? Is it simply because he's compassionate on those who are suffering, whether physically or spiritually? Well, yes, Jesus is compassionate. He manifests the love of God. He shows us in that regard what God is like. But there's more to it than just that. This demonstration of power is what happens when the kingdom of God is established. Jesus is showing everyone there the nature of the kingdom. When the kingdom of God is established, then every effect of the curse, every remnant of evil and suffering will be done away with. It will be brought to an end. We'll see this later in Luke chapter 10. Jesus would pick 72 among his disciples and tell them to go out and heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Think about that. These 72 are granted a measure of power. The Holy Spirit is given to them as Jesus commissions them. And he says, I want you to heal people and then tell them why. Tell them why you're doing this. Tell them what it means. The kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, that doesn't make sense. No kingdom divided against itself can stand. That's dumb. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, Jesus says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This demonstration of power in both deliverance and healing is showing the people that are gathered that day what the kingdom of God is like. It's show and tell. He preaches and heals. And the reason why Jesus is able to do this is because of who he is. He's the king of the kingdom. So the kingdom is present in Jesus. He is destined to rule over it. 
Like the angel told Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The good news of the kingdom is centered on the person and work of Jesus. It all hinges on who he is and what he accomplishes. So Jesus isn't just telling us good news about something that's happening out there that's unrelated to him and his activity. No, his presentation of the good news is presentation of himself. He is the one who saves us through his righteous life and his death on the cross. He is the one who triumphs over death and the devil. He is the one who will raise us up to life. He is the one who will establish God's kingdom. He is the one who will make all things new. Let me ask you, do you see Jesus at the center of the Christian message? Do you understand his place as the heart of the good news that we believe? It might sound really basic and elementary. Yeah, JD, I'm here because I think Jesus is a big deal. You don't have to tell me that. So it might feel elementary. But listen, there is such a thing as a Christless Christianity. There is such a thing as a heart, a family, a church, where the focus begins to shift. And the emphasis of the message is no longer Jesus. It's no longer what he says. It's no longer what he does. But subtly, the focus shifts to something else. But friends, Scripture is clear that the good news, the gospel, the reality of God's kingdom program, it all centers on Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the audience and seen that the good news is for all who come to Jesus. We look at the preacher and we find the good news centers on him. It's about his person and work. But third, I want to consider the message. The good news of the kingdom transforms those who follow Jesus. I'm going to give you just a brief overview, hopefully, of verses 24, or verses 20 rather, 20 through 49. The heartbeat of this whole sermon, if we were to boil it all down, is that followers of Jesus live as citizens of the coming kingdom. If that's who we are, if that's where we belong, if we have a share in that kingdom, then it should be demonstrated by the way we live. Followers of Jesus live as citizens of the coming kingdom. The good news of the kingdom transforms those who follow Jesus. If we believe the good news, if you believe the good news, that God, through his son Jesus Christ, is fulfilling his purpose for the world and is fulfilling his promise to us, if you've been saved from your sins, if you are destined for glory, then that changes everything. Faith in the gospel transforms our emotions, transforms our values, it transforms our attitudes, it transforms our priorities, how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we treat others. And we see this all throughout the body of Jesus' sermon. In verses 20 through 26, we see that kingdom citizens embrace a completely new paradigm. There's this, this pronouncement of both blessing and woe. Blessings to those who are poor, who are hungry, who weep. Blessings for those who are hated and excluded by people on account of Christ. Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did for the prophets. 
On the flip side, there's all these woes for those who are rich, those who are full, those who laugh, whom whom people speak well of. Jesus said their fathers did the same thing to the false prophets. And if you are outside the kingdom, it doesn't matter how well things are going for you now because there's an expiration date on those shallow blessings. Kingdom citizens embrace a completely new paradigm. It seems counterintuitive. It seems upside down. Blessed are those who are poor, who hungry, and who mourn. But it makes perfect sense. If you believe God's promises that a kingdom is coming, you'll start to embrace this new way of seeing things. Kingdom citizens also exhibit new Ethics, a different kind of attitude. Verses 27 through 38 give us all of this practical instruction on what it looks like to express love and mercy. Love and mercy. Loving, lending, forgiving. This is essentially Christ-likeness. Jesus is the perfect example of every point in his own sermon. Just one reason out of a million why he's the best preacher ever. He perfectly lived out his preaching. Nobody else ever has. And Jesus calls us to nothing less than what he himself exemplifies during his life on earth. Perfect love, a heart of mercy, sacrifice for the good of others. Kingdom citizens will exhibit this new kind of ethic of forgiveness and love and mercy. Kingdom citizens will respond in faith and obedience. At the end of this sermon, Jesus talks about the necessity of good fruit. He talks about responding to his message by building your house on the rock. There must be an eagerness in us to do what Jesus commands. This leads to a transformed life. Listen, this sermon, I want to make clear, it's not about how to get into the kingdom. Jesus is not giving a new kind of law that you have to keep in order to qualify to get in. Rather, Jesus is talking about the transformation that takes place when we follow Jesus as those who have become citizens of that kingdom, as those who have received and believed this good news. This is the necessary transformation that follows. This is the fruit of faith. This is the way of discipleship. This is the obedience of faith for those who believe the gospel. Followers of Jesus live as citizens of the coming kingdom. This prompts us to ask ourselves, is this transformation evident in us? Can it be seen in you? Can it be seen here? The church is meant to be an outpost. You could even say an embassy for this kingdom. When people come in here, they should get a taste of a foreign culture with different values, different ethic. They should see a glimmer of another kingdom. And the way we talk, the way we act, the way we react, the values we live by, our attitudes, our emotions, our priorities. If you were to travel today to Brazil or to Japan or to France, it would be a different culture. It'd be a different language. There'd be different assumptions, different food, different weather. Everything's different. But if you were to go into the United States Embassy, it would be this little piece of home where people spoke your language. And the culture and the assumptions and the authority and the laws are even different than everything else around that embassy. That's what the church is to be. We are an embassy, an outpost for the kingdom of God. So we are to be different than the world. 
And then as we go out into the world, as we leave here on Sunday, we go functioning as ambassadors. We are representatives, just like an ambassador in Japan or France or another nation. We represent our homeland. We represent the kingdom of God. So it's necessary that our lives give evidence of being transformed by the gospel. Because if we believe God's promises, if we embrace God's kingdom purposes, it's going to change everything about us. You know, there were a lot of different types of people who heard Jesus on that day. There were some committed followers. There were some naive fans, people that liked following Jesus, but they didn't really understand. There were some curious onlookers who were just trying to figure it out. And there were some there who were suspicious, some who were even skeptical. And Jesus had something to say to all of them. There's probably different types of people here today as well. Some of you are committed followers. You have counted the cost of discipleship, and you're all in. There's some of you that are warm and positive towards Jesus, but you haven't yet understood what repentance and faith truly is, what it requires. There may be some of you who are still resistant. You're unwilling to believe in Jesus, in who he is, to submit to what Jesus says. You're unsure if it's really worth it to give up the glory of this world, to give up the glory of this kingdom for a kingdom that is to come. I want you to listen to how Jesus closes this sermon. If you'll just turn to the end of chapter 6 one last time. Verse 47, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Friends, those who hear the teaching of Jesus, those who trust in him and trust in the good news that he proclaims, they're prepared for the judgment to come. But to reject the word of Jesus, to reject his message, to reject his authority, to refuse to submit to him as the king, it is spiritually disastrous. Everyone who heard the teaching of Jesus that day left making one of two decisions, either saying yes or no to Jesus as the king, either saying yes or no to his message about the kingdom. And all of us will make that same choice today. Which one describes you? Jesus preaches the good news of the kingdom. It's good news for all who will come to him. It's good news that centers on his person and work. And it's also good news that transforms those who follow Jesus. May we be a people who come to him and who hear. Open hearts, receptive hearts. And may we believe in the message of Jesus. And may that faith work itself out in obedience, leading to a transformed life. This is part of God's plan for his kingdom. He invites us to be part of it. I'm excited to keep studying through this sermon with you 
over the next number of weeks. But today, let's consider how we respond to Jesus and respond to his word. Father, we thank you for the glorious good news that you have not left us in our sins. You have not left us to fend for ourselves in a world that is broken and marked by evil and suffering. Thank you for the good news that you've not given up on your plan to redeem a people for your name, to gather us together and bring us into relationship with yourself, to rule over us, to pour out your grace upon us, and to bring us into a restored and renewed creation at the end of time. We recognize, Lord, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to bring about this kingdom. It all depends on you, your power, your grace. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself today, that we would be dependent on you, that we would be, that we would be quick to believe what you say in your word, that we would be eager to obey as best we can in our imperfect flesh the pattern of life that you set out for citizens of your kingdom. Lord, for those who today may still be outside of your kingdom, those who have not yet come to believe in the gospel, pray that they would recognize the centrality of Jesus, the work of Jesus, not just in his preaching, but also in his death and resurrection. Pray that they would come to him in faith, trusting in him, believing in him, turning from sin and self, turning to Christ, Pray that you would make them citizens of your kingdom today and that you would grow all of us, that we would increasingly day by day reflect the values and the purposes that you have for us. We pray all this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen.